All right, ladies and gentlemen. Hi, my name is Michael Guecki. I am uh, with Smart Church Project. We are the technology company working with the Confirmation Project, and we oversee uh, some of their social media and website presence. And so it is my uh, pleasure to introduce today uh, Rick Osber, a professor at Princeton Seminary, and then uh, from Katie Douglas, Dr. Katie Douglas, who is the other co-director, who will give, uh, uh, both of them will give you different aspects, overviews of the current uh, state of the research, and following that, we'll have a short time for question and answer. We anticipate our time together to be no more than uh, 45 minutes to an hour, um, uh, probably keeping it closer to that 45 minutes in light of the time that we've lost uh, with the technical difficulties. So uh, we're uh, overjoyed to have you with us. Uh, Rick, we'd love to have you uh, start your video here, and uh, Rick will share with us uh, his part, a short overview of the current research that's happened across the country. And uh, so, Rick, uh, please go ahead and get us started. Thanks a lot, Michael. And again, my apologies as well for the short delay. Um, I'm actually down uh, calling you from an internet cafe in Waynesville, North Carolina, and to my right is a beautiful stream flowing, and we're going to have people uh, walking around us uh, as I talk to you. Um, but this is a really uh, beautiful area, and I'm down here for the summer uh, working on the Confirmation Project, among other things. Uh, first, thanks for uh, choosing to participate in this. We really do uh, enjoy the opportunity to uh, communicate with you and to hear your questions. Um, the Confirmation Project is part of a larger uh, research project that's looking at five different denominations, all of which uh, practice infant baptism. And we're uh, doing two kinds of research. Uh, one uh, body of research is a national survey, and it's the first national survey of its uh, sort on these five denominations, I should say, uh, to ever have been done. Uh, and Katie will tell you a little bit about that in a few minutes. Um, the other sort of uh, trajectory of our research is uh, using the research method of uh, portraiture. Portraiture is qualitative research, and the survey uh, research gives you kind of the bird's eye view, looking at the larger patterns of uh, what's going on in confirmation from up high. Um, portraitures zoom in and give you a close-up of particular congregations. And our thinking and wanting to do both kinds of research was that the portraitures, and, um, we're going to be posting uh, portraits on our website, and I'm sure some of them will be published in the future, will give you a first-hand look in detail at um, 15 uh, different, uh, well, between 15 and 20 and maybe even up to 25 portraits of um, different places where confirmation is taking place. Most of these are uh, congregations, uh, but some of them are confirmation camps because this is an increasingly important part of the confirmation experience for many. And um, our hope is that as you read this portrait, uh, several things will happen to you, first of all, that you'll get some practical ideas, you'll learn about curriculum or teaching methods or the way people use retreats or how confirmation camp is integrated into a larger confirmation program. You'll learn some practical things, for example, about the different length of programs, how much they focus on, what they focus on, so on and so forth. 
We're also hoping that these portraits will kind of broaden your imagination. Uh, I'm going to describe to you real quickly two different um, portraits that um, uh, have been developed and you'll begin to see how different these contexts are and how different they do confirmation. And by reading through the range of portraits that are out there, uh, we're hoping that your imagination will be opened up and you'll begin to uh, have the opportunity to think a little bit about confirmation um, yourself. And then very briefly, and I'll mention these, uh, when you look at cases like this in depth, you really don't try to focus on broad generalizations, but what you do do is you compare the different congregations and you see if there are any common themes that emerge uh, across the diversity that's there. So that's what we're doing in this stream. And let, let me very briefly, uh, to, just to give you a sense of the range of uh, congregations and camps that we're looking at, uh, describe two uh, very different. Um, we very intentionally uh, set out in our planning to try to get some programs that are highly innovative and are really doing things out of the box. And we also wanted to look at others that are just doing good, traditional confirmation. And then we also have discovered that there are some that are kind of doing what we might call adaptive work. They're not doing something out of the box, but they've tinkered with their confirmation program in ways that make it adapt to their particular setting. So uh, when we get together next week, we're going to be looking at all the portraits together and we're going to try to see uh, what we've learned from this uh, range of confirmation uh, programs, from highly innovative to traditional, but uh, well done. Uh, two of the sites that we've looked at uh, give you an example of how different these uh, congregational settings really are. One is a megachurch uh, in the United Methodist Church, located in a large city in the Midwest. I'm not going to be giving you the details at this point uh, of the name of the church because we're still vetting those with congregations, and I think at this point it's probably appropriate just to keep that private. But this church has four different campuses spread across the city. It has a total of 20,000 members who are a part of this um, particular congregation. And um, they work very hard to try to uh, integrate uh, a church, uh, the members into a sense of identity in the congregation. The pastor, who's a well-known United Methodist preacher, his sermons are streamed live every week. Um, but probably the key to integrating people into the identity of this congregation are the service projects. And they are doing all kinds of service projects, from uh, a 5K run um, every year to a car show, uh, to individual projects that are at the initiative of people. And the idea is, as people kind of participate in these mission projects or service projects, they get to know another group of people, and their identity is knit into the identity of the larger congregation as a whole. That's important for the way they think about uh, confirmation because um, in a confirmation class this past year it was 127 young people across these uh, four campuses, pretty large, much larger than most confirmation programs that we're looking at. Um, 
they developed a set of strategies uh, that um, is an attempt to give young people an opportunity to, to explore their faith and to kind of own their faith for themselves and make a public declaration of that in a special confirmation service. One of the ways they do that is dividing all the young people into small groups. And in the small group, in a way, is the kind of center of the activities that they do. Uh, they get together uh, every week for a 10-week period, and they study scripture together, they pray together, they do a mission project uh, together. And each small group has two mentors that uh, kind of provide structure for the group and uh, a low level of leadership uh, from week to week. And then at the end of the process, those mentors give feedback to each confirmand individually about how they've seen him, uh, him or her grow. Um, I could say a lot more, but that just gives you a sense of kind of one confirmation program. And let me kind of compare that with another setting that we looked at. I was the one who happened to do the research on this particular setting. It's a Korean-American church uh, located in a suburb of uh, New York City. Uh, and it doesn't have 20,000 people. It has around 350 uh, members. Uh, this church uh, has uh, been located in a number of different buildings. In the past, they've always had to sort of rent space from others. Um, and the Presbytery approached them about taking over ownership of this building, which is incredibly beautiful, built by a well-known architect. It's on the historic uh, historical registry of... of um, uh, special sites in uh, the United States. And so when the Presbytery asked them to take it over, um, they were willing to do that um, because the current congregation couldn't maintain the expenses of the congregation anymore. And to just give you insight to the culture of the congregation, they immediately turned around and said to the original congregation that was still there, why don't you see yourselves as co-owners of this building with us? And they, um, the original church still uh, worships there with them, uh, and they've opened up the space to a, Bra a Brazilian English-speaking congregation, a Hispanic congregation, many other organizations in the community. So they're really oriented towards building bridges between the congregation and other churches uh, in the area. How they do confirmation is so different than uh, the first example that I shared with you. Um, they really are very concerned in this church to help their young people struggle with what it is to be a Korean-American in the United States. The church was originally uh, a church established by uh, immigrants uh, to the United States, and now they have both a Korean-speaking and an English-speaking ministry in the same congregation. This means that they have two con different confirmation programs. One is in uh, Korean uh, and the other is in uh, English. The English-speaking one mo mostly is directed to folks who are second or third generation and um, uh, that's the program that I studied in some depth. This confirmation program is very, very intense. It lasts between four to six weeks and it capitalizes on Korean-American strong commitment to education as it's supported in the home, in the school, and in the church. So what they do in this church is they study 
uh, the, the new uh, Presbyterian study catechism over a period of four to six weeks. Each young person is to read a section of it, and then they come to the class prepared to, to share one question and answer they found really helpful, and another question and answer that they found perplexing. And in the session that I observed, they dealt with really amazingly uh, complex issues. Uh, in the you know, especially when you keep in mind that confirmation in this church is for 13-year-olds. They focused on the judgment of God. Had a really nice conversation about that. They dealt with the question: Will all people be saved? And uh, the question: Why does if God's so good, why is there evil in the world? All these were questions that the young people brought themselves to the program, and the teacher of the program interacted with them and led a discussion of, of that, of those particular topics. Um, so that just gives you a sense of how different uh, the different confirmation programs are that we're looking at. Uh, the curriculum is different. The length of time is different. Uh, some of the churches uh, that are involved in our uh, uh, study include um, the Ground Zero Church for that came up with the curriculum Confirm, Not Conform. Uh, another church is located in a suburb of Atlanta, for example, and they focus primarily on a confirmation retreat uh, that's run by a center of spiritual formation, so on and so on. I just want to stress that we're looking at these instances in order to give you some good examples to wrestle with concretely of how confirmation is done in very different ways in different settings. Let me end by just telling you a couple of things that are emerging as we compare these two different, uh, the different uh, cases that we're looking at. Um, they're very different and yet we're asking as we engage in constant comparison are there things that were uh, commonalities that we're uh, seeing across the differences. For I think one commonality that we've seen in many of these uh, portraits has to do with the way they think about confirmation. Confirmation is an opportunity for young people to explore their faith, to own their faith, and make a public declaration of their faith at the end of the program. At the same time, a second generalization that's emerging is that almost all of these con uh, congregations are viewing confirmation as a very important step on a journey of faith and a faith formation that begun before confirmation and is going to continue as people um, live out the Christian life. So confirmation is important. It's a time to make a decision and to own your time, it's only one part of an ongoing process of faith formation. A third commonality has to do with the importance of leadership. And I could uh, describe this in lots of different ways, but all the programs that are thriving have very strong and creative leaders. They're really invested in young people. They care about the program, and they've gathered around them a leadership team um, that uh, has made the confirmation program something special in their church. And finally, a, a fourth kind of commonality that's emerged is the importance of relationships. We just, at many, many different levels, we hear the young people talking about the importance of the relationships they build with their peers in the program, the relationships they have with mentors. Um, we, we hear about the importance of uh, relationships in the leadership team, 
and uh, the relationships that the compromands are building with other people in the church. So I would have to say that's um, a fourth thing to highlight. Now we're meeting next week. We're going to look at all these um, Polaroid uh, portraits for the first time, and I'm sure that we'll have more to share in the future. But thanks for letting me share just this brief foray uh, into the portraiture uh, side of our research, and I'm now going to turn it over uh, to Katie Douglas, uh, who's uh, out in the Seattle area. Uh, so here I am in the mountains of North Carolina, and she's uh, right uh, in Seattle, and uh, she's going to tell you about the survey research. We've encountered some interesting things in that. Thanks for uh, being with us today, and I look forward to your questions. Hi, thanks for joining us, everybody. Like Rick said, I'm in Seattle, um, home to a number of eclectic churches, and I've really enjoyed um, getting to know people out here. I've been living here for about a year, um, and I've already made some connections. If you know anyone in the area, have them contact me. I'd love to make some new friends here. Um, so I want to tell you some about the survey that we've been doing. So this was a two-wave survey. We did a survey in the fall, and in the spring, you likely participated. The fall survey included ministry leaders, parents, and youth. And then the spring survey, only we only surveyed youth. And the idea there is that we want to look at how confirmation affects youth's beliefs, um, their volunteer hours, and different things over a period of time. So this is called a longitudinal study. Um, we uh, launched the T2 wave, or the T stands for time, so we're calling them T1 and Team 2. So we're taking a snapshot in time in the fall, a snapshot in time in the spring. And um, when we began to circulate the second wave of the study, we noticed a few red flags. And so we've had a bit of excitement at the confirmation project and might even consider ourselves a part of national news because um, our project was hacked, which was terrible. Uh, we uh, noticed that a number of uh, IP addresses um, that were being used were coming from all over the world. Um, we also had a number of, um, you could see when you looked at the way people were taking the survey, they were taking it very quickly in just two or three minutes, and it should have taken about 10 or 15 minutes. So when we looked back and tried to reconstruct kind of the story of what happened, it appears that what happened is one of the links that was being sent to the youth got into the hands of somebody who um, had bad intentions and went ahead and used the link 1,200 times to take the survey. What that means is that um, there practically we had two losses. So there's the financial loss of all the gift cards that we offered to youth. So I, maybe not ironically, but the um, adult and ministry leader portion of the survey was not um, hacked at all. But the only thing we offered for that was this free webinar. So apparently that wasn't worth um, kind of cheating the system to get into. But for youth, we offered a $5 gift card to Amazon or to Starbucks. And so that was attractive enough that somebody went through and then collected about $6,000 worth of Amazon gift cards. So at this point in time, um, we've registered that with the federal government, and um, you fill out a form online, maybe some of you have done this, and you kind of send it off and wait to hear back from them. So that was kind of one part of the loss. And the other part is um, regards our research. So we had thought we had about 2,000 youth respondents, which is a really a decent response rate. 
But unfortunately, um, with this loss of 1,200 responses, it's down to 700. So we're in a situation where we really can't report on the youth data. We're only able to report right now on what um, ministry leaders and parents are telling us. So um, what we've decided to do is to, I feel like we're taking lemons and making lemonade. Um, We've rearranged our budget a bit, and we're going to go ahead and launch the survey again next year. And this is actually really great for data collection because then we're able to compare not just one year, but an additional year of data so we can look at how people, how ministry leaders and parents are making changes over time. And the great thing about confirmation as a, a group of people, confirmands that we're studying, is that... Um, you know, if your church already participated, you can go ahead and participate again next year because you likely have a different group of confirmands. And even if you don't, we have a question in our survey that says, how far through your confirmation process are you? So we can look at youth, like let's say you have a two-year program. At the beginning, they would say, I'm at 0% finished. In the spring, they would have said 25% finished. Next fall, they'll say 50% finished. And then in the spring, they'll say 100% finished or completed. So um, anyway, that's kind of where things stand now. So I have some interesting uh, graphs. This is mixing old and new technology to share with you uh, from our what our ministry leaders had to say. So we had around 3,600 uh, ministry leaders and parents take the survey. Of them, about 40%, around 1,400, were um, ministry leaders who were um, in charge of confirmation. And of that group, about 88% were actually currently have confirmands in the program. So what I'm going to share with you is from that group who has confirmands currently. So when we began um, this research project a number of years ago, we um, were asking ministry leaders just generally, you know, what are some issues that you run into? Um, what are some things you have concerns about? And one of the things they told us was when they are leading confirmation, one of the challenges is that they have a mixed group. It's a heterogeneous group. Some kids who have been in youth group their whole life, some kids who, you know, really, this is their first time, they're not sure the difference between Jesus and Moses. So in our survey, we asked a question that said, um, how many youth did you know before confirmation began this year? And so if you look at this graph, you can see that 70%, um, that largest piece of the pie, said almost all of them, which is great. Uh, but the other 30%, um, if you, there are about 30% of people leading confirmation out there who are kind of meeting kids for the first time. And that might be for a number of reasons, and we can speculate about that. It might be that um, someone who's leading confirmation simply isn't involved with youth until they're involved in the youth's lives as a confirmation leader. But it might also be that, um, for example, I grew up in Ohio, and there's a large Roman Catholic presence in Dayton, where I lived, and um, confirmation is very common in the Roman Catholic Church. And so socially, there's a lot of pressure when you're 12 or 13 years old to participate in something like confirmation, even in the Protestant world. And so it might be that we see a really big influx of youth um, during those years because of um, the social pressure. And that's something, as uh, Rick was talking about, that's something we can learn about from our site visits um, that will give a lot more meaning to some of these graphs. But it is interesting to see confirmed um, that there are a significant number of people leading confirmation out there who are, you know, dealing with this heterogeneous mix. 
So what we're hoping is that um, you don't feel alone if you're one of the people doing that, but also that people who are writing curriculum, maybe in the denomination, can take that into account as they're preparing educational materials for people leading confirmation. So I have another graph for you, and this is um, what is the average age um, at which people begin confirmation. So if you can see, the largest column in the middle is the age 12, and on either side is 11 and 13. But then if you notice, the range goes all the way from age 5. We had four people give uh, or say that they had youth beginning confirmation at the age of 5, all the way up to 19. So this graph is kind of a typical bell curve, and it shows that the majority of churches have youth participating or starting in confirmation around the age of 11, 12, or 13. But these outliers are really interesting. And as we've um, we learned from at least one church um, out in the West that they're rethinking their whole confirmation program in terms of being, um, they don't even use the language of confirmation anymore. They're using the language of um, sort of being integrated into the church or becoming a member. So membership for this congregation starts, or the educational part of being integrated into the church, starts when you begin participating in the formal education program at their church. Um, and I think that's really interesting. So for our project, what we've decided is, uh, we decided early on was that um, because confirmation is something that kind of has this really strong traditional dimension to it, we're going to use the language of confirmation, but also um, add to that equivalent practices. Because some congregations, while they're doing things that are confirmation-ish or would fall easily into that category, they've simply dropped the language because it um, no longer holds the same meaning that it once did. Um, so for those congregations, it seems like what's happening is they're beginning, like I said, around the age of five or six to think of these people as kind of new members in the body of Christ and how do we integrate them. And I would imagine at those churches, the new member classes for adults or the way they integrate adults is much more fluid than some of these more traditional programs who have a really large group of, you know, 12-year-olds who start in confirmation and go through it for four to six weeks um, and then the adult members, you know, they, they never have to do anything really, right? They, they attend like two Sunday school classes where they kind of have coffee and get to know each other. I'm just kidding. I'm sure everybody out there is doing really intense things with adults. Um, all right, let me show you one other um, graph. And this is one that um, will kind of show you how our research is developing. So this graph shows the normal duration of the formal confirmation program. So how many years, um, how long in months or up to years, is a confirmation program lasting? So that largest category at the bottom says that most programs uh, over, what is that, over 25% um, last less than three months. Um, and this top category is over four years. So most programs seem to fall um, between three and nine months, those bottom three categories, although there's a significant number that lasts between one and a half to two years. So this is really interesting just to look at on its own, but this is something where when we break this up by denomination, which I'm not going to do here, but eventually our project will do this, um, we can look at our, divide our data by denomination and see that some programs tend toward um, a different, certain lengths of time for their, um, the formal program. Now some of these, what we're going to do, um, what we've learned in our project is that some programs, um, confirmation programs, might be three retreats throughout the year. So it might be 
three intensive 20-hour sessions, or, you know, they're sleeping through part of that, but um, throughout the year. So we might say that lasts nine months, but really it's three days over a nine-month period. Um, while other churches are doing um, things that look more like a traditional Sunday school class every single Sunday for two years, and they have required church attendance and different things. Um, that's another question we asked about that we're excited to share the data with you eventually. Um, so as our project continues, we're really interested in looking at these, and um, these numbers not just by um, kind of all clumped together as a group, but also by denomination. And this should hopefully also help people writing curriculum or um, to think about, you know, what ways can we resource churches um, if they're, they're really relying on retreats? Or how can we think about confirmation if it lasts, you know, the same length of time as the school year? Um, and starts in the fall and ends in the spring. Whereas a number of congregations are sticking more to a liturgical calendar, and so that three months really represents the period of Lent through Pentecost, or Lent and Easter, or Easter to Pentecost. Um, those are the types of things that we're um, able to learn as we kind of take our two methods of research, which are these site visits um, and in the form of a portrait, and um, take the statistics and put them up against each other and see how they interact. Um, I want to leave time for plenty of questions, so I'm going to stop now, and um, thanks for joining us. Michael, I'll let you take over. Okay, thanks, Katie. So everyone, I'd like to encourage you, uh, if you've been watching this webcast uh, with it made full screen, if you brought it up to the full screen, I'd encourage you to uh, drop it back uh, so that you are back on the page with our chat box. Uh, it's in that chat box. Uh, feel free to put questions or thoughts, or um, let's start up the conversation there. And uh, we will bring those questions directly to Rick and Katie that you uh, put in uh, that. Uh, whatever things are interesting you about the project, whether that be uh, how congregations were chosen, uh, what it looks like for this to be a national study across denominations. Uh, we're really interested in uh, engaging in this part of the conversation, those things that you uh, would find helpful in your own local context. Uh, so I, once again, I'd encourage you, uh, go ahead and make your way back to that text box. Uh, feel free to drop in your questions, and uh, we will, uh, at that point, be able to engage the conversation uh, with that point. And uh, Mike has asked our first question. Uh, Katie, why don't I um, uh, send this towards you? Are there any ways, Katie, of evaluating the effectiveness of a program that you've seen at this point in the research? Um, actually, one of our questions that we asked ministry leaders was, do you conduct evaluations um, of your programs? And right now, um, honestly, I haven't looked at that question, the responses yet for it, but I anticipate that we will be able to. I know that um, I've talked to some ministry leaders in the Seattle area recently, and um, a lot of them work with large group of, groups of volunteers, and one of the things that both of these people were doing is they reached out to me and just said, can we sit down and talk about our programs um, so one of their ways of evaluating, I would just assume, was to kind of talk with other people like me or um, other ministry leaders in the area to see what other people are doing and kind of comparing with um, attentiveness to their local community. So the man I talked with, um, he's in a military community, so they have a lot of trans transients there, a lot of transition with families coming in and out, but also a community that really appreciates tradition. So it was fun to talk and interact with him because I was saying, oh, some people are doing this and with mentors and he's like, yes, we have a mentoring program and it's very formal and they meet this many times. And 
And I said, wow, you have such high commitment. Um, and he said, well, that's kind of the personality of our community. So it seems what I've noticed is there's some self-evaluation going on when people become self-aware of their kind of ministry context and then are interacting with some of the um, kind of resources that are out there. But hopefully we'll be able to report um, in a more formal way about what people are doing. Another question, uh, this is, uh, we're, I'm going to combine questions here from David and from Sharon because these uh, questions I think dovetail and that is, uh, I know that we've had lots of conversations regarding curriculum uh, that have come up and uh, namely, uh, can we suggest curriculum? Uh, are there uh, venues and places in which people can be resourced as they seek to um, lead their confirmation programs? Uh, based upon where we're at in the research right now, how would you two respond to that question? Go ahead, Katie. Okay, so um, one exciting thing is that a number of the denominations are actually really interested in the project and they're looking to wait till our research kind of becomes available to begin writing cur curriculum that will be um, kind of the denominations curriculum. We also through our website have had a number of people send curriculum to us and we are currently kind of wrestling with how to go about sharing that. Um, or if we should share it or what format to share it in. If you have any ideas about that, we would love to know. Um, if it would be useful for us to host kind of a platform or a space for people to share um, curriculum, tell us if you think that that would be useful to you um, as somebody doing confirmation. Um, right now, what we have seen a lot of is that um, we actually asked a question about what curriculum do people use and um, how many different types of curriculum do people use. And so a number of people use, they tend to do uh, what might be called bricolage. So they tend to take one piece of curriculum and then the parts of it, they, they're like, eh, I could do this better. They'll rewrite parts of it. Um, and I think that's an amazing resource for other congregations. There's um, a uh, pub, public educators or teachers um, have a, uh, I think it's a website called Teachers Pay Teachers, and basically teachers write curriculum and then they can buy it from each other. So say I wrote a really amazing math activity for third graders, other third grade teachers can then buy it. So we're kind of um, exploring what that might look like in our project right now. Right now we're trying to keep our main focus on kind of what we've been commissioned to do, but we'd love to hear your ideas. Um, because that'll kind of help us with decision making and how can we help curate kind of a collection of the curriculum that's already great and already out there. I guess uh, the great. I would add to that would be to say that um, and looking at the portraits that we're coming up with at different congregations is that one of the things that seems to be evident is that um, people are adapting curriculums to their own context and they're changing how they use a particular curriculum from year to year. And a number of folks say things like, well, you know, I've kind of done this now for two or three years and I feel really comfortable with the material and becoming more comfortable with the material allows me to be a lot more flexible and freer in terms of how I use it. So I kind of know the things that I think are important in a given session, but I'm able to deal spontaneously with the questions or the particular issues that young people are are, um, are asking. And so, to me, that's that's an important insight. That um, in the end, it's probably I mean, finding a good curriculum 
there's no question that that can help. But in the end, it's experience and creativity in using that uh, curriculum to work with a particular group of young people uh, that you've got in confirmation uh, at a given time. So in light of the fact that the research has been extended uh, into uh, the coming academic year, uh, what is the timeline going to look like for confirmation leaders across the country to have access to the research and um, the, uh, a, a sort of format in which they could share it with their leaders? That's a great question. Um, so we're actually having a conference next week, so if you want, you can come and be a part of it at Luther Seminary. Um, we're going to kind of share, It's we're calling it kind of our emerging findings because this is really early on in our um, in our research. So we're, we're kind of digging through the data right now. But this fall, we're hoping to share some of these portraits through our website. We're still kind of working creatively, thinking creatively about the best way to do that. Um, and then uh, we're hoping that eventually we'll be able to publish something, um, a book that'll become available. One thing you can also do is if you have a, a community that, um, I don't know, you're, if you want to host a local event and bring one of our um, research team members out to share some of our research, people are available to do that. I think one of the big advantages of our, our big resources we've had um, uh, as the team that the team that we have collected together are 16 people who are literally spread from coast to coast, um, who have connections in all different parts of the country. And so, if you'd like to bring someone in to speak um, locally, we can uh, get you connected with somebody who lives near you, who might be able to come and host a conversation or give a presentation on on our research, which um, I think is a really great way of um, getting people connected. We can also host local webinars. or we're, You guys are all the guinea pigs for this. So we're trying to test this as a platform for sharing information as well. Uh, a really technical nitty-gritty question here for everyone. Will ministry leaders do surveys again next year or just the youth? Because we want to compare apples to apples, we're going to do it the exact same way again but we're building in an additional layer of kind of protection. So it will be ministry leaders and parents and youth again for the survey. And I have to give applause to the ministry leaders. They were wonderful in partnering with us and getting the surveys distributed um, and participating. So um, thank you. And yes, we would love to have you participate again. Even if you participated before, there will be a special box to check check that basically says, I already took the survey, but I'm going to go ahead and participate again. Because we're interested in, you know, how much are you changing from year to year? We have time for just two more questions. Uh, this question, uh, I, I think, is shared here between Jennifer and uh, Tish. And it sounds like, um, what have you found in the initial research that uh, lends you to believe that confirmation is happening outside the walls of a traditional church? In other words, social media or... Uh, maybe a, a, bl a blog or forums, uh, so, uh, a non-traditional kind of um, connected technological encounter with confirmation. Rick, have you guys? <laughs> yeah, that's a, a difficult question to answer thus far. I haven't really encountered um, somebody who's integrated that kind of technology extensively into their um, confirmation program. Uh, you know, a lot of confirmation programs and a lot of congregations are using that kind of uh, technology to communicate with people and to stay connected with people. But I can imagine the possibility of, um, 
you know, mentor-mentee relationships that uh, involve that, especially if the uh, mentor was an older youth and the two of them felt comfortable communicating uh, in that kinds of uh, way. But I can't really give you a good example at this point. Katie, are you familiar with uh, any of the sites that have really extensively used that um, in non-traditional ways? I haven't, but when one of the questions on our survey did ask about teaching methods, and we did ask, and I just don't have these numbers in front of me, but we did ask about you know how many people are using um, technology or the internet as part of their uh, curriculum. One thing um, we I feel like we have run into a little bit is um, congregations who maybe have one youth going through a confirmation program, and they're trying to get youth connected, and then they'll have kind of a common retreat. So they'll use technology to connect beforehand and then bring youth together at some kind of retreat. It seems like there's always um, the in-person element um, is part of this. And I think that probably, you know, is part of the tradition of um, you're trying to integrate people into a body, the body of Christ. So we're not, they're not, confirmation isn't just an interesting rite of passage that you can kind of take a test and go through. But um, that's one question people had, and we've had along the way, is how are people using technology as a part of confirmation? And right now it seems pretty basic. It's like using YouTube videos, using um, email to connect with people, using social media to stay connected with youth. So, um, I mean, some of this I think is, um, I mean, we're not discovering anything that you probably don't already have a sense of going on. But if there's something new that you know about, we would love to hear about it because um, that's been something we haven't been able to really put our finger on. Um, there have been some really interesting and unique and hilarious videos that have come out of different uh, denominations. I think the Lutherans have a really funny one about confirmation, but I, I can't think of what it's called off the top of my head, but it has a bunch of the like characters from history and teaches about confirmation or teaches about church practices and beliefs with this funny video. Uh, real quickly, Katie, in light of the timeline changes, when is the um, final, uh, the actual end of the research scheduled to be done? Um, that's a great question. So it'll happen the summer, next summer. So right now the second wave is still open. It'll be open until August 10th. So if you know any youth who haven't participated yet or you know youth who did this first wave, they'll get a $10 gift card for participating in the second wave. So get on them to do that and that'll be open through August 10th. So if we do a similar timeline for next year, um, the first wave will happen in the fall. We had that open in October through about March, just trying to uh, include all congregations who would start confirmation sometime in that window. And then the second wave we opened right around Easter. So, um, and then had that open through Pentecost and then into the summer, just so that youth who kind of went through confirmation but might have been on vacation the week afterwards, when they came back, they would have an email invitation um, to participate in the second wave of the survey. And uh, when would you anticipate the uh, first fruits of that research being published might be? I mean, the earliest would be the fall of 2016. Um, and what we're hoping for this, this wave, we can report some of the stuff that the ministry leaders and parents are telling us because the numbers are good enough, and then that'll kind of continue to roll out. The portraits, all of the sites have actually been visited with the, ex I mean, all of them actually have been visited, I think with the exception of one. So the qualitative portion of the research that Rick talked about, that will actually probably become available earlier than the youth statistics um, on the survey.
But as we see things starting to emerge, one thing about doing a survey is you see kind of um, percentages start to happen. So like 25% of youth answered this, and 50% answered this, and 75% answered this. That adds up to more than 100, but you know what I'm saying. Those trends tend to continue if it's a good survey. So what we can start to do is have conversations like this that are somewhat vague and informal, but we can say, oh, it looks like this is happening, or it looks like that's happening. Um, and those are much easier to report but eventually there's, there'll be a formal formal report with real numbers that comes out, and that'll, I don't know, Rick, that's what I'm guessing, but it might be a little bit later than that. Everything with this project has taken a, a little bit longer than I thought. Yeah. I think that sounds right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we have been so thrilled to have you join us today. Uh, in uh, respect for your time, we realize we've reached the 11.30 Eastern Standard Time hour. We apologize for the technical difficulties that we encountered. Uh, we do want, or I'd like to reemphasize what Katie shared, and that is this is us uh, starving uh, to try to have a, a long-term conversation with you. So um, if you found this webcast helpful, we'd love to know that. If you found it not helpful for another reason, we'd also love to know that. Uh, because at the end of the day, our goal is that this research uh, might be more than just uh, something gathering dust on your shelves, but it might be a tool that you find useful in the midst of your ministry. And uh, honestly, we need your feedback as we continue to do that. So whether you contact us through the Contact Us form on the website or you put that in the, uh, the, the discussion box that we have underneath the video, we will be attentive to that. Uh, there are other questions here that we didn't get to, and I apologize for that. Hopefully we can get some of those answered on the blog or in a future conversation. So uh, thanks again for your time, and uh, we look forward to seeing you next time. Blessings.